welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, so, just such a beautiful story, and I get paid to sit and hear these stories. Uh, I love my job. Um, so, funny thing that happened the day after we filmed that. Uh, there was an update uh, where there was going to be yet another delay in the housing, uh, putting Justin and Bridget back in this limbo place. And um, it's fascinating because, again, it warranted a conversation just to give an update to Michaeline about what was happening. Um, and a few days later, they got a text saying, yeah, you can stay till March. That sounds good because, and I quote, it just feels right. And so there's this beautiful story that's happening between two parties who are saying yes to one another and who are um, being generous, and it, it's so beautiful. And uh, as I was gearing up for fall this year, uh, as it relates to the mission and outreach piece of Awaken, one of the mantras that I'm sure many of you have heard me say is that I want Awaken to be so deeply invested in our community that if we were gone tomorrow, it would be felt. Uh, and not to create some sort of weird dependency, but more just to be aware and, and uh, supportive of those around us. And I got to meet with Bridget and heard a little bit about what was happening um, and acknowledging that it takes a lot of time for us to develop that kind of trust. Most of the churches in this neighborhood are older than probably everyone in this room. <laughs> uh, there is, I mean, this was built in like 1938. 39. Um, and so, I don't know, we, we were chatting and, and Bridget just, uh, she was passionate and excited about uh, this possibility and invitation in their lives. And then she just said, what do you think about uh, bringing it to Awaken? And I, you know, I get a lot of that. All of you have great ideas. And so, we can't obviously say yes to everything. And so, I, I took that and I sat with it and I had conversations. And the more and more uh, I sat with it. It just felt like, well, this is low-hanging fruit. Why wouldn't we want to be a part of seeing a new beginning in people's lives? Why wouldn't we pool together all of what we have and see what happens? Uh, what you hear over and over and over again from up front is that this, I mean, I grew up in the church, and Awaken is the most generous group of people I've ever been around, and that is not just rhetoric. For heaven's sakes, when we started Sheridan's story in Linwood Monroe, our goal was 4,000, and you all gave 18,000. I mean, it's, it feels a little laughable sometimes. And so it just felt like, well, this is yet another opportunity. And so here is the invitation. I want to see all of you resource this house and make it a home. I want to see life groups go together uh, and get mattresses. And I want to see the youth group get the bedding. And I want to see the communion team get all of the dishes. And I want the artists in this community to create art and to donate that to make the space feel beautiful and safe, to hold this new beginning that these women get to walk into. And I want the person who is here for the very first time, who does not even consider Awaken Home, to get silverware in those drawers. And I want those of you who can't participate materially to show up on moving day and to help make the space. And I want you to be holding these women in prayer 
as they walk into their new home and their new start. And so after the gathering, uh, Bridget and Justin will be in the back. There are sign-up sheets where you can put your name and contact information to get information on how to participate. Uh, and you'll be hearing about it in Awaken Weekly and all of that. So I'm ready to be surprised. Let's see what we can come up with. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in our Lost in Translation series where we are taking some of the uh, maybe uncomfortable, hard-to-read passages in the scriptures, which is not hard to come by, uh, and attempting to humbly make some meaning of them with the intent that we start a conversation, not end it. Uh, and this passage is no different. Uh, when we were in our worship planning meeting, because we have those, um, I fought real hard for this passage, and Micah would not give it up unless I provided a better option, which is where last week came from, flit knives and foreskins. <laughs> so you're welcome. <laughs> I take full credit, zero responsibility for what was said. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, chapter 4, starting in verse 32 going through 511. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of the word. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There was no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back a part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied, not to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all of those who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Amen. <laughs> Pray with me. God, for eyes 
to see and ears to hear this morning. God, that we would be aware of how your spirit is at work among us, that we would be aware of your presence and what you are inviting us into. In your name we pray. Amen. Now have a seat. So I promise this is a total fluke that this passage landed on the same day as that video. Uh, but quite ironic because I can just threaten that if you withhold your possessions, God will strike you dead. Um, so careful. Uh, the people in this neighborhood are going to see that we are a very motivated group of people. Uh, so this morning, I wanted to start actually with uh, a story of my first real encounter with this passage. Uh, a few years ago, I was dating a guy who was a leader in a Bible study. And like you do, uh, with a budding new relationship, you get invited to go to his Bible study. Um, and this particular type of Bible study was the kind where there are like 200 people, and they separate the men and the women, and you do your homework, and you come with the answers pre-filled, and then everyone goes around in a circle and <laughs> tells their answers. And that setting just makes me want to die a little. <laughs> um, I, Bible studies apparently are not my bread and butter, but we, uh, I was up for it because we were dating, and so we said our long goodbyes, and I went to my respective room, and he went to his, and I sat in a giant circle of 20 of my new closest girlfriends, <laughs> and the leader, uh, we read this particular passage, Acts 5, and the leader asked the question, and then everyone went around and gave their answer. And I remember sitting there, fascinated, because everyone was actually saying the exact same thing. That after reading and encountering this passage, the answers were, oh, it just goes to show how righteous and holy God is, and that we're so lucky that uh, we're spared, because he could strike us dead at any moment. And I was sitting in that circle, borderline anxiety attack, because it felt like no one was paying attention to what we were reading. It felt like no one had a problem with the fact that we're in the New Testament and God just struck someone dead. We might expect it from the Old Testament, but we're in the New Testament, Jesus. And secondly, is what they did all that bad? They still gave money. I don't understand like, what the issue is with that. Was that like the expectation? And not only that, there are people in the scriptures who do way worse. Judas betrays Jesus. And in Matthew 26, during this exchange of the betrayal, Jesus looks at him and calls him friend. Do what you have come to do. And no one seemed to feel that uncomfortable with what they just read. And in that moment, I just felt suffocated because it felt like we were giving such sterile responses to a provocative and arresting passage. And then I felt a little bit of shame because sometimes I have what I call bad Christian syndrome <laughs> and it flares up from time to time where I'm in a room feeling like, why can't I just believe what they believe? And why can't I just say that, well, God said it, so God 
is God, and that's that. But it began a journey with this particular passage, which is why I fought so hard for it. Needless to say, the relationship didn't work out. <laughs> but it is precisely for this reason at Awaken that we do this passage. Because in part, this is what the text is supposed to do. We are supposed to have response when we encounter these words and these stories and this narrative that God is creating. That's the point. And the place of response is the place of invitation for us to lean in, for us to ask better questions. And so this morning, what I want to do is really simple. I just want to look at a few things. I want to zoom way out, uh, look at this within the larger biblical narrative, and then I want to zoom in at a couple specific things. And so, just to give you a little bit of background on the book of Acts, um, most believe that the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same author. Um, so in some ways, it's a bookend of one another. The Gospel of Luke is telling the story of Jesus, and then the book of Acts is a continuation of that and the formation of God's people, almost like a rebirth of God's people, because it's a really beautiful thing. We don't always realize, but the New Testament draws really heavily on the Old Testament. And so if you overlay the book of Acts with the story of the formation of Israel, God's people, the overlaps are uncanny and, and actually quite beautiful and add layers of meaning. And so the author of, of Acts in this particular passage is doing just that. Uh, so many believe that he is drawing on a narrative in the book of Joshua, chapter 7, with the sin of Achan. Uh, so similarly, this is when the people of Israel are in a crucial new beginning where they have crossed into the land that God has promised them. And the Israelites are given a warning. They are told to guard themselves from the devoted things uh, lest they become the thing that they devote themselves to. Meaning that when they encounter the gold and the silver and the bronze and the iron and all of the things that hold value that have been dedicated or devoted to other gods, what they are supposed to do is instead of taking that, uh, they are in turn supposed to turn and devote it to Yahweh. And so Achan shows up in the story and he takes uh, some of these devoted things for himself the Israelites uh, go into battle and they lose the battle because of this thing. Uh, and sure enough, upon further investigation, Joshua and the leaders find that Achan is hoarding these things. So they take him out back and they stone him. Ooh, it's a good day. Good day for Achan and the Israelites. Uh, and so uh, what we see, though, and the overlap that's happening is you have this crucial new beginning in the story of Israel, and you have this crucial new beginning with the church in Acts. You have a person who is mishandling possessions and things that are valuable and worthy, and you have extreme punishment. And so what is being said? And I know for myself, like, that is the glaring issue of the passage. That is what evokes that uh, gross response in me that doesn't want to engage it anymore because it feels like there is a minor offense, it doesn't feel like it's a big deal, and there's an extreme punishment. And so, 
it's very difficult. Most scholars, going back to our Acts passage, don't actually know like how to hold or how to interpret this particular passage. And so some, on this end, say that this is not even a historical event. Um, that many new believers, after uh, the work of Christ, believe that death was no longer going to happen. And so when two members of the church all of a sudden die, they have to some sort of uh, make meaning of what's happening. And so, hence, this story and this narrative. And then you have others on the other side of the spectrum who say, yep, this is what God did. Don't deceive each other, otherwise God will kill you. So, uh, this is kind of the thing that we're in between, that we have to figure out how, how is it that we make meaning of, of this. Uh, and those are great questions. I just want to land somewhere else. I have no interest in maybe smoothing over something that is meant to jolt us, something that is meant to evoke a strong and startling response. It says in the text that the believers, that there was a great fear. And where I'm not a big fan of fear, uh, in some ways there is healthy fear, like the kind of fear of don't touch the hot stove. And I feel like what's happening uh, is that our passage is attempting to communicate something a little bit more. And I think what the passage is attempting to do, and it's attempting to say, that how you start something sets the trajectory for it. And so, we remember the story of Israel. They're at this crucial new beginning, stepping into a new identity and a new way of being together. And the church, similarly, in light of the work of Christ, are experiencing this rebirth, a starting over as God's people together. It's the beginning of walking into this reality of being blessed in order to be a blessing, to reflect the character and nature of God. And it's as if the authors are intentionally tapping into the things that tend to take us off the rails. So where there is deceit, and when there is pursuit of possession, when there is concern for the self at the expense of the other, what the authors are trying to say is that only death can come of that. So these passages are offered as vignettes of warning for the people of God to remember that new beginnings are sacred and they need to be held delicately. Beginnings are the moments where you have as clean of a slate as you are actually going to have. And if we are not thoughtful about the things that we take with us and the things that we leave behind in those new beginnings, it won't actually be a new beginning. You'll keep repeating the cycle. And I think that our, our authors are acknowledging this crucial moment in the people of God and saying, be reflective of this. And I think about this house and these women who in many ways will have a new beginning. I think about the road to recovery and addiction and what it means to actually engage that and to do that well and to be aware of what you bring along with you in that uh, road. And so I want us as a people to see new beginnings full of hope and promise. And this passage invites us to be intentional and thoughtful about that. And so if that's true, that our passage is inviting us into seeing and holding the weight of what it means to start something, 
Uh, I don't feel like we can actually talk about this passage without acknowledging the entire impetus for the interaction, um, which is to talk about like possessions and uh, the stuff. Uh, it seems as though one of the functions of this passage, and, and really all throughout Acts, is to provide a commentary on how we are invited to be in relationship to the things that we have, not just materially, uh, but everything else that we have, personality, emotions, talent, all of that. And one of the questions that I have had with this passage uh, is really about, like, what was the crime itself? Was it truly that what was expected of Ananias and Sapphira is that they were expected to sell all of their possessions, to pool all of the money, and that was the reason, because they held back, and that was the reason that they experienced what they did. And I think a helpful thing in answering that, the picture that's painted in the beginning of our passage uh, opens with this generous description of uh, the, these new believers in Jesus. They are of one heart and one mind. No one thought that what they had was their own, but in fact, they held everything in common. And then we meet Barnabas, this man who has a field and sells the field and brings the proceeds to the feet of the apostles uh, to be distributed so that no one is needy. Sounds a whole lot like socialism, huh? <laughs> but we encounter uh, Ananias and Sapphira in, in the midst of that, the same situation in two very different traje tra trajectories. Um, but what I think is being established is that this is less about a command and an expectation that the followers of Jesus pool their resources and distribute it among the needy and more about a description of what's happening when the people of Jesus are actually following Jesus. When the people of God are actually aware of how the Spirit works among us because what happens is that we begin to look at what we have in all of the different ways that we have things, and we realize that what we have actually does not belong to us. We are entrusted with it. And so we meet Ananias and Sapphira, who hold a very, I guess, different um, understanding of that. One of the really beautiful things in this passage, and what I think is true all throughout the scriptures, is to actually look at the meaning of people's names, because it adds... Um, and really, I don't know, it's intentional. Um, and so Ananias is Hebrew in its origin, and Ananias literally means Yahweh has been gracious. Grace. And so if we remember, uh, in the biblical context, grace is not only, um, if you come from a church background, oftentimes we describe grace as this unmerited or unwarranted, undeserved gift. Uh, that we receive, and it, and it sort of ends there. And yet, uh, the biblical authors seem to be adding another uh, piece of meaning around grace, which is mainly that not only do you receive this gift, you are also entrusted to do something with it. And so in the Old Testament, when Noah, it's translated, Noah finds favor in the eyes of Yahweh, but that's the word for grace. And after he finds this grace, he's entrusted with all of creation. 
And Joseph, in Genesis 37, finds favor or grace in the eyes of God and is entrusted with the household of Potiphar. And so there's this sense that we receive, it's in Ananias' name, that God has been gracious to you, but he has forgotten that he's been entrusted, and that's a part of it. It says that uh, in verses 32 to 34, that there was great grace among all of the believers, resulting in this pooling of what we have and holding it out and letting it be used. And Sapphira means beautiful or precious gem, uh, like sapphire. And again, it holds this picture of abundance and affluence and um, being entrusted with something that's precious. And Ananias and Sapphira seem to have forgotten that that's their name. Up until this point, what we see in the narrative is that the depiction of believers and, and what they hold and their possessions, it is this assumption that what I have does not belong to me. It's been entrusted. We live in a culture where that is actually, I think, a difficult, hard word for many of us to understand. I even think about myself and the degree that I recently finished. And I think of that degree as mine. I'm the one that applied. I'm the one that put all the blood, sweat, and tears into this whole thing. I'm the one that read pointless books. <laughs> I spent hours and hours and hours thinking and producing and all sorts of things. I worked hard for my degree. It is mine. And I had a scholarship which means that it's not mine. Someone paid for me to be there. I grew up in a home with two parents, middle class, both educated, relatively emotionally healthy. My dad was in the first gathering when I said that. <laughs> uh, I'm white. I participate in a system of privilege. It affords that to me. And so how can I say that this thing is mine? In fact, it feels more like I've been entrusted with it. What will I do? And so I wonder this morning if there is an invitation for us to shift, to think about what we have and what we hold uh, in light of being entrusted with it. That in fact it is not mine, but it's ours. It belongs to God and one another. And finally, this morning, I want to land in what I think the main issue of the passage is, what the reason for Peter's admonition was, uh, what was this whole thing that could not be carried into the new beginning of the future of God's people. And mainly, it's this. They lied. They brought deceit into the picture they painted an identity and created a persona that was not true about who they actually were and what they were actually holding. And the thing is, is on the outside, it looks no different than what we saw from Barnabas, where you have uh, this piece of land that's being sold and, and the money is being brought to the apostles and it's being distributed. And yet, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, there is this secret hiddenness, where they maybe actually don't 
know that there will be enough if they give it all. And so, I, I don't know. I, I think that part of what we have to acknowledge is that there was this withholding and this deceit because when that happens, uh, you, in, you violate trust. When we paint an image and a persona of something that's not actually true, there isn't real relationship because you've created a relationship with an image. It's not real. And I think that this is the thing that the followers of Jesus in this new beginning, like you can't bring that with. The people of God are not meant to be deceivers. We are invited to be wholehearted, to bring all of ourselves to God and one another. And yet, I am deceitful. I, we, spin an image every day. I want you to think that I'm funny and that I'm kind and that I'm generous and that I'm good. And it's not that that's not true. It's just that I put a lot of effort into making sure that that's what you see. And so I withhold. I withhold the things that I'm holding. I withhold my time and my resources and my energy. And I have a sense that you maybe do too. But this is what the passage does. It calls it out. It names it for what it is. That when we put all of our effort and energy into maintaining and spinning this image, it will only produce death. Life cannot come up from it. And even as I have been sitting in this passage the last few weeks trying to make sense of it, I like have this interaction with someone where I let on that I was maybe a little more um, together and passionate about something that I really actually didn't want to do. And then I, like that same day, I studied this. And it was one of those things where I was like, crap, I did that. I didn't see it coming. Like it was just, it's like you say the things and all of a sudden I created something that wasn't true and I could have just said, man, I'm really afraid to do this. Uh, maybe that would have been received. Because the thing is, when we are in relationship with one another in the family of God, the invitation is that we actually get to peel back the layers. We actually get to be honest about who we are and what we're holding and what we're carrying. Because in the family of God, what is true is that when we are a part of this thing, we have been radically accepted by a creator and a redeemer God who has seen what we are holding and what we are carrying and has said yes to it. And so there is no need to spin a web. There is no need to deceive because it's known. And our invitation as the followers of this God who has said yes is to say yes to one another, which is no, tall, no small order. And I think uh, oftentimes this hasn't been true of our experience in church, and yet, this is the invitation. 
that we just get to bring ourselves, what we are entrusted with, and hold it out to God and one another, trusting that God will do something with it. We are invited to be all in, to be wholehearted people, to be people who are not afraid to show what's actually there, because we have a God who has said yes. And so as we transition this morning into a time of response, I'd like to invite John Mark and the band forward. Um, what we're going to do is I'll pray. We're going to take just a few moments of silence uh, to maybe give you an opportunity to acknowledge the places uh, where you are withholding or to acknowledge what are the things that you feel like you have been entrusted with making some time and space to be available to what God is doing in this moment. After that, we will move into a time of response. There will be song. Uh, you are invited to stand, kneel, sit. Uh, during this time, our prayer space is available. Uh, if you want someone to pray for you or if you just want to be alone, you can write prayers on the walls. Uh, and I don't know if you noticed, we have new candles in the back because they weren't up to code. <laughs> They weren't. <laughs> uh, so during this time, you can move about and uh, light a candle and, um, yeah, invite you to be aware of what's happening inside of you. Pray with me. God, thank you um, that you see what we hold and that you are not deterred by it. Thank you that we don't have to spin an image in front of you, that you say yes. So God, I ask um, for deeper knowledge and capacity in holding that. Uh, help us to be aware of how you are at work in this moment. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, for what you are holding and for what this world is holding, grace and peace to you. Help us to see it, God. Um, an invitation to participate. Justin and Bridget will be in the back. There are sign-up sheets if you want more information on how to participate. And I'm wondering if we can call an audible and uh, bless one another with the doxology. Uh, and that will be our cue. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awaken community or on twitter by awaken community see you next time